Please turn on your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2, uh, the second chapter of Haggai. We have already uh, commenced our study uh, on this little book, and we want to try to sum up what the book uh, presents to us as we come uh, now around this book of Haggai. So, we trust the Lord will be with us. We welcome you each one, and we pray that God will touch our hearts this morning as we read the Word and we consider it together. So, Haggai chapter 2. I want to read the, the whole chapter with you just now. Let us hear the Word of God. In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the Word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josadak, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it? That's the first house, as nothing. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, the son of Josadak, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. In the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests concerning the law, saying, if one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, No. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. And now I pray you, consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days were, when one came to an heap of twenty measures, there were but ten, when one came to the press fat for to draw out Fifty vessels out of the press there were but twenty. I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail and all the labors of your hands. Yet ye turned not to me, saith the Lord. Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree hath not brought forth, from this day will I bless you. 
And again the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots. And those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtel, saith the Lord, and I will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. And we know that God will bless the reading of the word to all of our hearts. Again, I welcome you all, welcome those online, and we pray that the Lord will be with us as we consider His Word. Now, already we've looked at the book of Haggai in this series on the Minor Prophets, and in that last study, uh, in this little book of Haggai, I showed you that we have essentially the sermon notes of four messages that Haggai delivered. Again, we must add, we don't say in making that remark that these are the only times that Haggai preached. We know, of course, that would not be the case, but there were four of his messages that he delivered to Israel in those days that the Holy Spirit then moved him to record, as we find in this, the book that bears his name. But the first of these messages is, of course, in chapter 1. And the record shows that it was brought about by the delay in the rebuilding of the second temple. The background to that delay is found in Ezra, Ezra chapter 4 specifically. We're not turning there now, but uh, we just want to mention this. Ezra 4 gives you the background of the delay in the rebuilding program. And we learn there that the Jews' enemies, the Samaritans, succeeded in persuading the emperor, Artaxerxes, the emperor of the Medes and the Persians, to issue a command for the rebuilding of the temple to cease. We have seen all this in our studies in Ezra. And remember again that Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra were all contemporaries. They all labored together. But anyhow, the, 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 the emperor gave that command so that the work of God actually ceased uh, at that particular time. And his decree, the decree of Artaxerxes, actually uh, negated the former decree of Cyrus, who had initiated this work of the rebuilding of the temple. But as time went by, uh, we find that the Jews became so preoccupied with their own comforts, they allowed the work of the Lord to lie waste. So it's against that background that Haggai was sent to preach along with Zechariah, and it's in that context, therefore, that we have this little book of Haggai with Haggai's four messages that were delivered at that time. And again, I stress, uh, he no doubt preached far more than four, but the four messages that God wanted to be in the Bible for us today, for the church and every generation, are recorded for us. And so, in this second chapter, we have the other three of those messages. The first one is in chapter 1, so the whole of chapter 1 is devoted to recording his first message. And then chapter 2, we have the second, the third, and the fourth messages that Haggai delivered. Now, considering all four messages, there's actually a certain order 
followed by the prophet in what he proclaimed to the nation as he was directed to do so by the Lord. In sequence, the prophet brought, first of all, a message of reproof, then a message of promise, followed by another message of reproof, and then finally another message of promise. And so just note that. We will see that now a little more clearly as I uh, look in more depth at these messages. And there's an actual word that we can use for each of the messages. And I will stress that as we, as we come to look at them today uh, in sequence. And so, number one, message one. I know we've looked at chapter one. I just want to go over that again briefly here. But message one, it's a message of reproof for carnality. A message of reproof for carnality, for giving way to the flesh. That's what carnality is. The Bible speaks of carnality in various places. It, it reveals to us that we're all, we're all prone to be carnal. You know, there are those who have taught a, a theory that there, uh, there, there's the Christian and then there's the carnal Christian. And they make a distinction. Now, I know what they're maybe trying to get at, but we've all got to remember that every believer, every Christian is prone to carnality. And if someone denies that, well, they're not being honest because we all carry still with us the old fleshly nature. Even after we're born again, right on through the rest of our days, we will find carnality rising up within our hearts and plaguing us and hindering us and holding us back and pulling us down. And so, uh, we must confess this. We have to get before the Lord and simply confess to Him that we still can be carnal in our thoughts, carnal in our desires, carnal in our behavior. Paul said to the Corinthians, I could not speak unto you as spiritual but as carnal, because there was carnality in the Corinthian church. And that book certainly makes us absolutely clear that the believer, the, the church of Jesus Christ as a whole, is often, in fact, continually battling carnality, fighting against it. Why would the Apostle Paul say to us in his writings that we are to crucify the flesh with the affections and the lusts thereof, that we're to die daily unto sin if there were no carnality in our hearts or in our lives or in our behavior? So, let's get this straight. And so, the Lord comes along and He reproves us for our carnality. And that's what the first message is all about. We saw this in that study a few weeks back. Haggai's first message, I told you on that occasion that all four of his messages here are dated. They all took place in the reign of Darius, who succeeded Cyrus. And they took place in the second year of that king. And that means that Haggai's first message, as I pointed out, was delivered in the year 520 B.C., in the sixth month and on the first day of the month. And the fact that the Holy Spirit has given us the date of that man's first message means that it was a significant message. And every one of them is dated as we read our way through this little book. The three points that I laid with you, uh, left with you in that study, uh, we noted uh, one after the other. I just mentioned them in passing here. 
Number one, there was a confrontation. Number two, it was a message of restoration and a message of humiliation. Just a word or two about those thoughts, those points that I brought out of chapter one, where you have the first message. But I want to get on into the second chapter here today and, and uh, deal with the, the last three messages uh, as the Lord gives help. The Lord confronted His people. It was a message of confrontation about these matters that were all wrong in their lives. The Lord confronted them about their carnal attitude to His work. You know, when we speak about carnality, yes, it could be a bad outbreaking of the flesh and its loss in our lives, or it could be merely an attitude. That's why the Bible warns the Christian to guard his or her mind against an attitude that's wrong. It could be an attitude of anger. That's carnality. It could be an attitude of jealousy. That's carnality. It could be an attitude of slothfulness. You keep mentioning uh, sins here. Three, I've mentioned anger and, and so on. And, and therefore, our minds can be carnal. It may not go beyond that. And here's the problem that's confronted this first message. There was a carnal attitude of the Israelites toward the work of the Lord, and therefore their, their failure as well uh, to do what the Lord required of them. If you look at chapter 1, verse 9, there you really have the key verse to uh, the first message. It says, Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste, and you run every man to his own house. You see, the Lord had confronted them. He actually had confronted them by causing their labors not to be fruitful. I mean, in the physical realm. They sowed their crops, and they did all those things that they were inclined to do because they were a farming people. And the Lord blew on it. And it did not produce what it should have produced or would have produced at other times. And the strange thing is, the Israelites didn't seem to catch it. The Lord has to come along and say to them, ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, whatever they did bring home, the Lord blew on it. And even when it was put into the storehouses, it just withered up or whatever happened to it, the Lord blew on it. And then the Lord says, Why? You see, the people weren't asking why. They weren't thinking, why is this happening to us? Why are we not prospering? Why are we not seeing the fruit of our labor as we maybe did before or we would like to see it? Why, why is this happening? They didn't seem to get the point. And so the Lord had to come and say, here's the reason. The end of verse 9 there, because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. Those are very, very strong words. You notice in that confrontation that the Lord uh, raised here, there was his concern. His, his uh, concern was that his house would be built. Why? As the focal point for his worship and to present the message of redemption, and above all, to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. The Lord was very, very 
concerned and displeased and had to confront his people for their carnality, running to their own things, to their own comforts, and neglecting the house of God when that house was to be central to all of their religion, their worship, their beliefs, etc. And then there was the Lord's testament, as part A shows you. I've already gone over that. It came to little. I blew on it. The Lord chastened them for their sins. And so he confronted them about their carnality, and then he restored them from their carnality by calling on them, as we saw in a number of places in this chapter, verse 5 and verse 7, consider your ways. And remember the word consider means set your heart, which simply means you've got to deal with this. You've got to deal with this yourself. Set your hearts on where you've gone wrong, on your neglect. Have a long, hard look at why things are not going well, why you are suffering in, in the way of losing uh, the crops, and I'm blowing on it, and I'm causing it all to weather. You've got to consider what's wrong. And so the Lord shows to them that He is out to restore them in this message of reproof for carnality. So there's confrontation and there's restoration. And then as we saw in closing, there's humiliation because at the last part of, the ver- the last part of chapter 1, for a period of about three weeks, there was a time of brokenness and humiliation before the recommencement of the work actually uh, began again, or before the, the building of the temple began again. There was a period of three weeks where obviously they were before the Lord in brokenness and repentance. So, a message of reproof for carnality. I can't say any more for time's sake. Message 2. We come in now to chapter 2. And look at chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying. And then you go on right through from verse 1 to right through to verse number 9, and there you have the second message. So, message 2. It's a message of promise of glory. A message of promise of glory. It gave the promise of glory to the Lord's people, and it had to do with the temple that was being built. And we may consider this message of the promise of glory and its different points in the following fashion. Let me just say a few things, therefore, about this message, just to try to get out of it for you what it's actually revealing. The new temple seemed as nothing compared to Solomon's temple. Look at verse number 3. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes, and comparison of it is nothing? Brethren and sisters, remember this. When God asks questions, it's not because He doesn't know. It's to make us think and make us realize where we've gone wrong. And always remember that. The very first question in the Bible is, where art thou? And that's not because God didn't know where Adam was. It's because He wanted Adam to realize where he was, how he'd fallen, and so on. And so the Lord here asks a number of questions in verse 3. Three of them. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? In other words, there were people there who had come back from Babylon. They'd been there all those years. But they also were people who had 
lived before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. They had, they had lived in the days of those final kings of Judah, and they had been carried away from Judah, and now they're back home again. And as I said to you in that last study, uh, it is believed that Haggai, as he asks these questions, is one of those older people, elderly people. They were at least in their mid-70s. Just assume that maybe one or two of them, or maybe, I don't know how many, but if you just take the 70 years in Babylon and so on, now they're back home. And they've been back home for 20 years. So, if you think about it that way, uh, maybe my arithmetic here is wrong, but um, they were at least in their mid-70s because the final destruction of Jerusalem didn't come until well into the captivity. They were taken away, and then more were taken away, and then more were taken away. Nebuchadnezzar actually had three captivities uh, at different periods right through all those years. The first was 605 B.C., but it kept happening at intervals, three of them altogether. So, we just can't pinpoint this exactly, but there are people here who had seen the temple of Solomon. And that's what the Lord means in the first question. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? He probes their memories. He wants them to remember. He wants them to recollect. He wants them to think back. Then he says, and how do you see it now? In other words, how do you see this temple? What's your thought about it? And then the Lord really gives the answer. Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it that is Solomon's temple as nothing. So, what was going on here? The new temple that they were actually building, compared with Solomon's temple, they saw it as nothing. They despised it. They, they didn't see it as being of the same stature, so to speak, as the temple of Solomon. And you know, in a similar way, it very often seems to some believers, especially, they must say this, especially to older believers, that God's work today seems as nothing compared with God's moving in the past. We're all inclined to compare what we have today with what we had yesterday, I mean, in spiritual things. And of course, I'm, I'm, I'm just simply making the point, but it could be we compare today with 40 years ago, 50 years ago, depending on your age, 20 years ago. And with this romantic thought that back then things were far better and that things were easier and there was so much more blessing than now, well, we have to be careful with that because whatever's happening now among earnest, sincere Christians is this. It's what God is doing among them. And whether that is not maybe as great in volume as it was in a former day, nonetheless, let us not despise the day of small things. You see, the Lord had to rebuke these people with those very words, as you find in Zechariah chapter 4. You've got the same kind of thing there, essentially, as you have here. And they were despising the day of small things. And we need to be very careful with that, because whatever the Lord is doing today, it's His work, and we should rejoice in it. Yes, pray for more, look for more, labor for more. And so, this is why this was a message. He has to show these people that there's glory coming here. And so, he has to call them short and, and cause them to think 
with those questions in verse number 3. And then you go on into uh, verse numbers uh, 4 and 5, and it says this, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you come out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. And what do you find there? There's a twofold promise that always stands. It's a promise of the Lord's presence and a promise of the Lord's power. They're both here. Verse 4, a promise of the Lord's presence, I am with you. With all their backsliding, all their carnality, all their failure, the Lord comes and He says, I am with you. But He says more than that. He says in verse 5, My Spirit remains among you. You see, brethren and sisters, the Lord never leaves His church. The Lord never leaves His redeemed people. And furthermore, He never takes His Spirit from them. And we must always keep that in mind because if God withdrew Himself completely, if the Holy Spirit were taken away, as some actually would try to tell you, happens. And it's nonsense. If the Lord, if we no longer had the Lord's presence and no longer had the Holy Spirit among us, the work of God would die completely. There wouldn't be a Christian left on the earth. Now get a hold of that. We've got to see that. The Lord hasn't abandoned His church. I know that denominations can weather and die, and there are multiple denominations over church history that are no more. And there are congregations that disappear. But I'm talking about the Lord's redeemed people, wherever they are, whatever title they used in regards to a church name, God has a people on this earth. And he's building his church still. And he gives to us that promise of his presence and his power by the Holy Ghost. And we rejoice to that that promise is still ours. It was a message, and this is the basis I'm laying here. I've referred to message too as a message of promise of glory. And so we're saying here that while they thought that the new temple was nothing compared to Solomon's temple, and they were despising what was happening even in the building of the temple in their own day. Yet the Lord says, I'm still with you, and my power by the Spirit is still with you. But then you see it was also a promise of glorious future events. Look at verse 6. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. Now, what does that all mean that I've just read in verse 6 and the first part of verse 7? Well, here is the answer at the end of verse 7. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. That's why I call his second message a message that is a promise of glory. The Lord says here, I will fill this house with glory. Now, these words have a future essence to them. Still, I firmly believe that the Lord will come one day and He will appear in all His glory. But, you know, the Lord is telling these people in His own day, I mean Haggai's day, that the second temple would be finished. 
Exactly, tell him that in verses 6 and 7. For he says, I will fill this house with glory. He's saying, the house will be built. You've laid off working at it. You've neglected it, but I'm going to make sure it's built. And then he says, I'll fill it with, with glory. And so he's telling them that he's going to see the house through to the end. And that's why you've got verse 8. It says that the silver is mine and the gold is mine. What's he telling them? I'm going to provide. And you know, the Lord always finances His own will in every generation. When the Lord sets out to do a work, He will provide. Remember that. As He builds His church, there never will come a day when He will stop providing. The money will keep coming in. The wherewithal, the material needs, the uh, spiritual labor, all that's involved in, in the work of God, the Lord will see to it that it will be provided and that what He has started to do will continue on and will, and will be carried out and will never cease. Let us not be pessimistic. Let us look for the Lord to work in our day and time in the light of these words. And so the Lord is revealing that in every generation, he always finances his own will. That is certainly encouraged for us today. But then you see there's something here that we must not miss, and I want to show you that now. It says in verse 7, I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. Now, what does that mean? The desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The desire of all nations is Christ. The desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory. So, we're getting an understanding of here of what the glory actually is that was going to be in this house. Here's the point, men and women. Jesus Christ stood in this temple that's being built in the days of Ezra and Zerubbabel and and Haggai, and so on. Christ entered that temple. Christ preached in that temple. Christ healed people in the precincts of that temple. And so, that's what's meant. You see, the glory that we want in the house of God is not the glory of its architecture. A building could be, and I believe it should be, as plain as possible. That's always been the stance of the Reformed churches uh, with regard to the buildings that we have. Yes, they should be comfortable and dry and so on and warm and stand the test of things. That's all fine. But we're not like Rome. Why does Rome build elaborate buildings? Why do the heathen uh, erect elaborate idols and, and so on? Because they think that's what worship's all about. That you can't worship God unless you have all this paraphernalia of an elaborate kind. And they would despise the plain building that we're in right now because this is a plain building. There's nothing elaborate about it. But see, that's the position that the Bible would have us to take and not get carried away with these things because it's the Lord's presence in the midst, that's the glory. And you can have the most wonderful building on the face of the earth. And it's, it's not only empty, maybe physically, with nobody in them, but there's not, a, there's not a squeak of the Lord's presence. 
not a, an ounce of his glory. In that sense, when the Lord comes and displays his glory by miracles of grace, by reviving the saints, by building up the hearts of God's people. That's what we are looking at. That's what the Lord is showing to His people here uh, in the days of Haggai, that He's going to fill this house with glory. And He actually says in verse 9, "...the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts." Who is our peace? Jesus Christ. Solomon's house, yes, it was a magnificent building, and the Lord did manifest His glory there too, but not in the same way as it was manifested in this second temple, because God incarnate came down in the second temple and walked there and ministered there. And therefore, what we're seeing is uh, what we want to see in our day and time is an exchanging of the desolation caused by apostasy and carnality and, and worldliness for the glory of the Lord being in the midst and working among His people and in their hearts. So that's the second message. It's a message of promise of glory. Then we come to verse 10. And from verse 10 to verse 19 of chapter 2, we have a message of reproof for impurity. So remember what I told you at the outset today? There are four messages, and you find that the first is a message of reproof, the second is a message of promise, and now we come back to another message of reproof for impurity this time. To look at verse 10, you have the date there. We'll read on quickly. Verse 11, Ask now the priests concerning the law, saying, if one bear holy flesh and the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And so look carefully at that question in verse number 12 and ask yourself, well, what does this actually mean? What is the Lord saying here? Well, what is it to do with is the ceremonial law. And so if a priest had what's called holy flesh, that's the flesh of a sacrifice, an animal that's been offered up to God. It's holy in that sense that it was set apart in sacrifice in the worship of God. So if a priest had a piece of that meat or that uh, body of that animal offered in sacrifice and he touched other items, and it's mentioned here, bread, pottage, wine, oil, or any meat, will that sacrifice that was offered to God or a portion of it make those other items holy? And what did the priest say? The end of verse 12, And the priest answered and said, No. Now let's read on before I make any other, other remarks here. Let's read on into verse uh, 13. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body. Now remember that in the ceremonial law, when it uses the word unclean, and the word unclean is used over and over again in Leviticus, but when, the, when, the, Leviticals, when the, uh, the book of Leviticus uses the word unclean, it doesn't mean dirty in the sense of muck all over you. I'll put it as plainly as that. What it means is ceremonially unclean. And so, if you touched a dead body, then according to the ceremonial law, you were regarded as being unclean. 
Now, that's what the word unclean, that's how it's used. So, again, verse 13, if one that was unclean by a dead body touch any of these, that is, those items, bread, pottage, wine, oil, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. So, notice the difference. If you took a piece of holy flesh, that is, the piece of an animal offered up to God in sacrifice, and you touched items with it, Though it was set apart to God and was holy in that sense, it didn't impart its sacredness, its holiness to the bread or the oil or the meat or whatever. But if you touched a dead body and you then were ceremonially unclean and you then yourself touched any of those items, they were made unclean. Now, what is God teaching here? He's teaching two things. Holiness is not contagious. Sin is contagious. That's what he's teaching. Now, what do I mean by the word? Well, you know what the word contagious, you know what it means. If I had yellow fever <laughs> and I had to be inoculated against it and go into um, Liberia, if you get yellow fever, you're, you're finished. But if I had yellow fever, that's a very contagious disease. And if I touched you or whatever, then I would give you yellow fever. And we're, we're all aware of that. Diseases are contagious. But health isn't. You can be the most healthy person in this room, but you cannot make somebody beside you healthy by touching them. If, you're got, if you've got some awful disease and you touch the person beside you, then you're going to spread that disease. And it could be nothing more than the cold. But that's why we wash our hands and so on. It makes sense to do those things. We don't pass on our colds and flus to others. So, you can't spread your health, however. So, the Lord takes all that, and of course, it's in the context here of the ceremonial law, and He's saying to His people, you can't make others holy. Now, think about that, dear people. Why do you pray for your boys and girls? Why do you pray for the unsaved, for God to work in their hearts and, and save them and deliver them? Why do you wrestle with God for teenagers who are maybe going astray? It's because you can't save them. You can't sanctify them. You can't make them holy. God must do that. But why do you need to pray by the same token that the Lord will prevent your carnality and your disobedience from affecting others. It's because when you and I uh, are not what we should be as Christians, then that does spread to others. Sin is contagious. That's why the Christian is to walk a holy life by the grace of God. That's why Christian parents, Christian people in general, are to be very careful how they behave themselves. Your conduct, your attitude, whatever it might be, of pe young people, for example, and especially young people see that, will say, well, if he can do that, so can I. The contagion is there. But you cannot make anybody holy in the sense of actually 
transferring holiness from you to others. Won't you turn to Leviticus 15 quickly, please, and look with me at an example of this. Leviticus 15, and we'll come in at verse number 2, where the Lord is speaking to Moses and Aaron, Leviticus 15, 2, and He says to them, Say unto the children of Israel, When any man hath a running issue out of his flesh, because of his issue he is unclean. And there's that ceremonial law. Leviticus 15, 2, an example of it, I mean. A running issue. It could be some disease and a bodily fluid is what's in view here in verse 2. A running issue. It's a bodily fluid. And if that man has got some kind of disease within his body and there's a running issue or there's a fluid uh, produced by that and it's horrible to, to read these words, but this does happen to this day, doesn't it? And it says, uh, when any man hath a running issue out of his flesh, because of his issue he is unclean. And this shall be his uncleanness in his issue. Whether his flesh run with his issue, or his flesh be stopped from his issue, it is his uncleanness. And listen to this. Every bed whereon he lieth, that hath the issue, is unclean. Everything whereon he sitteth shall be unclean. Whosoever toucheth his bed shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean. Now, I'm not reading any farther because it's all here. It was teaching the very same fact in minute detail. The man needed help. <laughs> he needed healed. But the Lord used this kind of situation where he had some disease within his body. And if he sat and if he lay in his bed or he sat in a chair, he touched other people, then they became unclean because he was regarded under the ceremonial laws unclean in that ceremonial self sense. He may not have looked unclean. He may have been sparkling outwardly and his face shining, but uh, at the same time he's ceremonially unclean and whatever he touches is unclean. Now what is God putting his finger on there? Because it talks about an issue out of his flesh. That little detail is designed again to bring out this whole issue, this, this whole matter, this truth. You and I have an unclean nature within us, and it issues out of us in how we speak, in how we behave, and so on and so on and so on. What's in you comes out. Remember what it says in Proverbs, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And so you will find that if men curse and swear and tell filthy jokes, the ungodly, it's because in, in them there's an uncleanness. There's a corruption. And it comes out. And they spread their filth. And they harm other people. And they, they pollute the minds of the young. The world's doing that all the time. The world is filthy. The world has a carnal heart. The world has an unclean soul. And it keeps spewing out its uncleanness. And so, my dear friend, this is graphic language that we're looking at today. And we turn back to Haggai for time's sake here because our time is nearly gone. But that's what this, the third message is all about. It's a message of reproof for impurity. And the Lord brings it home to them very, very powerfully because the priests of Israel, they have to answer honestly. And they did answer honestly. In verse 12, they have to say no. And in verse 13, they have to say yes. And you can look at that all again on your own. I haven't time to stay any longer. 
We come then to the fourth message. That's from verse 20 through to verse number 23. And in that verse, or those verses, we have a message of promise of victory. A promise of victory. It's a promise of victory. It held good for Zerubbabel and the Lord's people of that day. In other words, the Lord brought down their enemies. If you look quickly at Ezra 5 and verse number 5, you will see that. Ezra 5, verse 5, it says this, But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, that they could not cause them to cease, till the matter came to Darius, and then they returned answer by letter concerning this matter. So, Ezra 5, verse 5 is telling that in those days God dealt with their enemies. Now, look at verse 20 of Haggai 2. And again the word of the Lord came on to Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, uh, Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I'll overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I'll destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and the riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. Now that's a statement to the effect that God was giving the, a message of promise of victory to these people in Haggai's day that he was going to put down their enemies and they would not be able to stop the work of God. And so this message of victory held good for Zerubbabel and the Lord's people of that particular day. But brothers and sisters, it has yet a future fulfillment. It holds good for a future day when the Lord will come and He will put down all His enemies forever. And that's really the ultimate outcome of the fourth message, this promise of victory that was given through Haggai and brought to the Lord's people in those days. It does hold good for days to come. And if you turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and look with me at what the Lord says concerning the end of all things. 1 Corinthians 15 and the verse number 24, it says this, Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. That's Christ crushing all of his enemies finally at the end, at his own coming. Or look at Revelation 19. Verse number 11, Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. And it says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And you can read on there in Revelation 19, it's about the coming of the Lord, as in 1 Corinthians 15, and it shows victory and triumph for the saints. And so, the fourth message was a message of victory, promise of victory. And we rejoice in that today because I don't know what tomorrow will bring, nor do you. I don't know what next year will bring if we're still here, if the Lord hasn't come or whatever. But I do know this. I know the end of the story, and so do you. And that's where Haggai finishes. He takes our minds away down the road. 
And he says, the Lord's going to shake the heavens and the earth. What a shaking it's going to be. When the trumpet sounds and the voice of the Lord is heard and, and he comes in all his glory and majesty and he puts down all his enemies, what a day that will be. And the Bible makes it absolutely clear that that day is coming. And therefore, this message of victory that was Haggai's fourth message is one that is a bearing right through to the very end of time and to the coming of the Lord Himself. And so, may God write His Word in all of our hearts and encourage us through it, speak to us, have us realize today how careful we need to be walking with God, uh, and yet also understand that the Lord's work goes on, and He keeps His people. He's never left them. His Spirit will not be withdrawn from His people in some final sense. No, not at all. Yes, we can grieve the Spirit, quench the Spirit, but He will never be taken away. That does not give us an excuse to live as we like. That gives us all the more reason to live holy and godly and righteously in this present evil world. And may the Lord help us to do that. So we'll bow in prayer and may the Lord bless His truth to us. Heavenly Father, we pray that Thou wilt be with us in our thoughts and in our longings and yearnings. And stir up our hearts and give us desire for Thee and lead us on with Thee, O God, day by day. Help us to eschew evil. Help us to flee from sin. Come, O God, and breathe on us from the throne above. And we know Thy power and Thy blessing. Abide with us now. On into the time of prayer, on, on into the morning worship. And may Christ be glorified and His name uplifted. For this we pray in His name and for His sake. Amen.